friend you want me to sing or something. <laughs> <laughs> that would end it right fast. It is good to be with you again. I appreciate this opportunity and privilege of coming and being able to bring God's Word. This morning we're going to be focusing upon a short little passage from the book of Hebrews. If you want to turn there, a few moments we'll be doing that. But to again bring us up to speed of where we've been and for those that are new with us to kind of give you a little bit of a background. We've been talking about walking with God or how we live the Christian life. And we started with Enoch and how he walked with God in a godly way and, um, and then God took him and on to heaven without dying. And He is there with God even today and, um, and where we'll be in Jesus Christ as well. And then we talked about how that comes about. And that's about being connected to Jesus who said, I am the true vine and we are the branches and we must abide in Him. And we do that through His Spirit that He gives to us when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And that enables us then to walk in love, in light, as well as in wisdom, following God's ways, God's directives, and God's um, laws for us, or His His rules for us. And then this morning, just a few moments ago, we talked about how we are walk, to walk hand in hand as the body of Christ, and, and that support, and that love, and that care that we have for one another. And what it does is this is bringing us full circle back around to the fact that walking with God means living with God, not just here and now, but for eternity. And we're going to look at this passage from Hebrews that is in two parts. First, it talks about worship here on earth, going back to Sinai, back to the children of Israel when they were brought out of the land of Egypt by Moses, and they were led into the wilderness. And remember when Moses, um, God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, and He said to him to go back and release my people, tell the Pharaoh to release my people, and you'll come back to this mountain and you'll worship me here. And Moses went to, um, to Pharaoh and his commandment or his um, request might be to Pharaoh, commandment of God, was that God says, let my people go that they may hold a feast or a worship unto me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said no. Always said yes many times, and he said no. And, and then even after he said yes for the final time, it turned to a no, and he pursued them and tried to destroy them. But God prevailed. They went back to Sinai, and they worshipped. And the first part of our Scripture deals with that. And then we have the contrast of that as we look at what Christian worship is and what worship will be like even in heaven that is mirrored here on earth today. So that's the scope of where we're going this morning and so let's do so by turning to Hebrews chapter 12. We'll begin at verse 18. So please rise for the reading of the Scriptures. Remember this first part is what is at Sinai. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, a darkness and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, 
and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkling blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that we can come to Mount Zion, that that represents Your holy temple, Your holy place, Your holy city, the place where You are. And when we gather together in worship, Father, that's what we do. We're gathering in Your presence in a very special way, a time and a place where collectively we lift up our voices in adoration and praise. A place where we seek to bring You honor and glory and in so doing, You edify us as Your people, the followers through Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. You see? Old Testament worship. You know, prior to the time of, of, um, Moses, of, the time of um, Abraham and Moses, rather, before the, the law was given, there was all sorts of worship took place. Abraham and even back before that, they worshiped God. They built an altar and they would worship God. There's nothing structured really about it or a little structure to it. But when Moses came on the scene and God led the children of Israel out of Egypt and they went back to Sinai, here's the beginning of the structure of worship. And God gave Moses the law. We think about the Ten Commandments, and that's kind of the heart of the law. It gives us the basics, but it's much more than that. You've got the books of Leviticus and, and Numbers that lay out so much of um, that law of God for us. And then Deuteronomy comes and repeats a lot of that and gives us more understanding of the law of God. That which dictates our whole life and how we are to live if we are to please God. It also gives us structures for worship. Worship within the, the temple, the place of God. And it involved those sacrifices, those offerings to God. And we talked about that a little bit earlier this morning and, and how they would bring their animals or their grain offerings and they would put them on the altar and burn them as a sacrifice to the Lord. And how we are called, though, to be living sacrifices. And that becomes a real big difference between the, the two. But in the Old Testament, it was that sacrifice unto the Lord that was to be made. The emphasis here in the, this passage in Hebrews, which is a very brief little summary of that, has to do with the sensual aspect of worship. Now I say sensual not in a negative way at all, but in the true sense of that word. It related to the senses. Remember, the mountain was there, Mount Sinai as we call it. Technically it was in the Sinai range, it was a mountain called Mount Horeb. But Mount Sinai was there and Moses was the only one allowed to go up on that mountain. And they were to build a, even a fence around it, they said, because if even an animal goes up and touches it, it shall be killed. Holy, so separate. So different. And part of the worship was to show how perfect God is and then to be reminded that He has said, I am holy and you are to be holy too. A commandment upon us that we obviously cannot keep. We cannot become perfect. 
Only through Jesus Christ is that wall broken down. But in the Old Testament, that wall was there and the people would, would do what God said, would bring those offerings as a, a sacrifice to Him, acknowledging, I am a sinful person, I don't deserve this, and may my blood be taken away by the blood of this animal. And in a sense, it was in a representative sense. Because every sacrifice offered pointed to the one true sacrifice, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who would be slain for our sins on Mount um, Carmel. Excuse me, not Mount Carmel. On Mount Calvary. Excuse me. But look at the centralness of this. It says it's a blazing fire. The mountain would be blazed of fire and smoke. Darkness would be around as a gloom was there. But then you'd have this flaring. You'd have lightning. You had thunder that was taking place. All the senses were involved in, in all that was taking place. And it scared the people so much. And even Moses himself said he was scared. God is an awesome God. Now that word used to, to carry a different meaning than it does today. But about 20, 30 years ago, it sort of got into the, the common culture of our, of our um, land. And we started talking, we had the song, God is an, Our God is an Awesome God. And great things, but all of a sudden it became kind of commonplace. And we just, everything was awesome. Everything's awesome. God's awesome. You know, that's an awesome dress the lady has on. That's, this is awesome. That's awesome. It sort of lost its meaning. The idea of awesome that is there is that a one is to be feared and trembled because He is almighty. The writer of Hebrews uses a different phrase. He says, our God is a consuming fire. He will consume all that's against Him. He is that type of a God. He is a God to be feared. And we talk about the fear of God and we oftentimes when we talk about it, we translate that to mean the reverence that we're to have for God and that's good. We ought to have a reverence for God because He is indeed a God who means business. He's a God that has laid out the world, created it, everything in it. He's laid out all the laws and the rules for the world and they're His and they stand. Mankind can fight against it all he wants. He can come up and say, I don't care about God. I'm going to do it my way. But he will learn that, his, that the man's way is not the right way. It will never stand. It will never survive. God is not only the Creator, but He is the one who will judge the world. And Jesus Christ has promised that He will come back again and will judge the world. And all of the Old Testament um, Worship was centered around this concept of God as an awesome God. God is a consuming fire. God is a God who is to be feared and, and, and worshipped in that sense that if we displease Him, we are in trouble. And so it was a worship that had a kind of a negative connotation to it. But then Jesus Christ came. And Jesus Christ said, I am God. I am one with the Father. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And what does Jesus do? He goes to the cross. Not that this was not unheard of in the Old Testament, particularly the prophet Isaiah spoke about how Jesus would come as that suffering servant and how He would come and He would be that Lamb of God that would take away our sins. Just as John proclaimed in the, at His baptism. How Jesus would be that answer that God had for our sinfulness. Remember, Paul says all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. He would pay the price for our sin. The wages of sin is death. And those wages have to be paid. Sin must be paid for. God, being a holy God, will never say, okay, that's sin, but that doesn't really matter. They were little sins, or they were in the past. I'm just going to forget about them. You can't do that. God cannot do that and be true unto Himself. He said, no, every sin must be paid for. But then He provided a way all who will accept the fact that Jesus' death upon the cross, a righteous death, a death that did not have to be done because He had not sinned, would accept His death as the payment for your sins. If you accept that, then God says, I will then accept you as my child and welcome you into heaven. Just as He did with Enoch, who walked with Him and ended up in heaven. Our walk with God here is a walk that's made possible because of Jesus Christ. And our worship shows that. It changes from that. From this worship of the, at Mount Sinai where God gave the Ten Commandments and gave His law, telling all these about, He says, this is what I demand of you, but the fact is that we cannot actually keep it. Part of the law, and part of the purpose of the law, is to show us that we cannot live up to those standards that God has placed there. And that's, that again is a purpose of the law. One of the purposes of the law. To show us we cannot in our own. And therefore, we cannot go to be with God on our own. But God has provided the bridge. God has provided the way. God has provided that that is absolutely necessary for us. And He did it through sending His own Son who gave His life upon the cross of Calvary that we might have life if we believe in Him. And the second part of our worship here is it's described, He calls it Mount Zion. It's to contrast that of Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Mount Sinai with Moses, Mount Zion is with Christ. Mount Sinai represents the law of God, the demands of God that we cannot fulfill. Mount uh, Zion represents Christ and the Gospel. The good news that though we are sinners, God has sent His Son to die for our sins. That's the contrast that we have. But you have come to Mount Zion. And what does He say Mount Zion? He says the city of the living God it's a city where God is. and Therefore, He calls it Jerusalem. But it's not just Jerusalem here on earth. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. The perfect Jerusalem. Remember when Jesus comes back, He's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. And in the book of Revelation, it's talked about being Jerusalem that comes down. Not literally the city again of Jerusalem, but it's a spiritual concept of that perfect place where God is and God will be worshipped and adored forever and ever. You have come to this place, Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to a place, he says, that has innumerable angels in festal gathering. What's he talking about there? You know, if we go to the book of Revelation, we find some of this description for us um, very clearly. There are two particular passages in Revelation where we talk about the worship of God. 
And one of those is in chapter 4, and it talks about the angels and, and the, the elders that are around the throne. And it says that they are proclaiming, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And then it drops down talking about Jesus Christ the Lamb. Is this is picture here where it talks about the book of life being opened and, and those people who can come in. The book of life has to be opened for the people whose names are written in it to come into heaven. And it says, but there was no one found worthy to open that book. And then John sees in his vision is told by one of the angels that the Lamb of God is worthy. And the people then praise in these words. It says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. God the Creator is also the God of the recreation. The God of our salvation. The God who saves us and brings us into that relationship with Him. How important that is for us to understand this about Mount Zion. We also need to never forget it's what God is giving to us. Again, we cannot do it ourselves only as a free gift of God. Only as Jesus came and, and freely gave Himself for us and died for us can we know this salvation. Over in chapter 7 of Revelation, we have the other section that I talked about that, that deals with this worship of God. And it really begins in verse 9. And it says, And after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could count, and they were found coming from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, and they were standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb. And they were clothed in white robes. They had palm branches in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation is of our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshipped God saying, Amen. Blessed and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That's the picture of worship. That's the picture of worship in heaven. And it's supposed to be a picture of, of glamorous worship, of exciting worship for us, where we're there in God's presence and, and there's no distractions, there's nothing else. We're focused upon Him and we see His majesty, we see His glory, we see all that He's done for us. He is the one who's created. He is the one who gave His Son for us. Everything is perfect. We're told elsewhere that script, that heaven is that place where you know all of our pain will be taken away. All of the problems and difficulties of this life are done away with. They're no longer there. It is the perfect place. And so to go and be in heaven is something to be glorious. Now, sometimes when you start talking to people about heaven, they kind of shrug back a little bit. Oh, I'm not too sure about that. It seems like it'd be awfully boring just laying around clouds thumbing your, your heart all day long. Well, that's a picture we've sort of pictured, but it's not the true picture. The true picture is that we will be in 
worship that's exciting and glorious of God and, and praising Him. When we look at the descriptions of heaven, they are descriptions that we really... It's John, John trying to take a heaven-perfect picture and relate it into human terms. How do you do that? Well, the way he did it, as he said, it's like the streets are paved with gold. And, you know, more important than probably the gold paving is that gold is hard and it doesn't have potholes. It's, it's a paving that never wears out. We're told about the Jerusalem being that place where you have the tree of life. And in the Garden of Eden, you had one tree of life. In heaven, it says, is a river that flows through it. And that was important for them to understand. They live in an arid land. And it's an arid land where you're needing water all the time. You're looking for wells, digging wells, always trying to find water. This is saying it's flowing right through it. And along the sides of that river, that water that's necessary, the tree of life everywhere. It is life. It is the epitome of life. The glory of life is what heaven is all about. And that's what's there for the people of God. Who gets to go? We've already talked about it. Those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, yes. But Peter gives us a, a very important picture of what this is all about. In his little letter, 1 Peter the second verse, oh, second chapter, verse 9, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for, um, <clears throat> excuse me, for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Peter is saying that those people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you believe because God has indeed called you to believe. This morning we were looking at, at Romans um, chapter 12, but if we backed up in that a little bit, we see the same thing said back in Romans 8, where it talks about how all things work together for the good of those that love the Lord and called according to His purpose. We love that verse. But read on. It talks about how we are those that are called according to His purpose or those that He has predestined and has called Himself. Now, I know there may be some here who don't like that word predestined. Or you don't like the word chosen or, um, or election. I just, just ask, if that's a problem with you, go to the Bible. Check it out there. Read Ephesians 1 and 2 to start with. Look at Romans chapter 8. Look at what Paul, uh, what Peter says here in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says that those that will be in heaven are a chosen race, a chosen people, a royal priesthood. You've been made ones that hold up God and lift up. We talk about the priesthood of all believers. It comes partially from this passage. What we mean by that, a, a priest was one who would represent the people before God and God before the people. That go-between. He says that all of us as believers are that. And we are a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood for each other. Now some have tried to take that and say, oh, that means I don't need a priest. I just go directly to God. That's true, you do. But that's not the concept. The priest does it for others. In the church, we all become priests for each other. Bear one another's sins. 
love one another, care for one another. All those ways that we show that unity that we have as believers in Christ. That's what we think. That's what you've been chosen to do. You've been chosen by God to be this priesthood for each other in the body of Christ. You've been chosen to be a holy nation. We keep talking about holy. Holy means set apart for God. You're to be a group of people who are set apart for God. God has indeed chosen you for that. He goes on and explains that. He says, you are a people for His own possession. For His own glory we have been chosen to be this. And then He says, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him. The One who has called us out of darkness into that light. Remember, we're supposed to be walking in light. Walking in the love of God. Walking in the light of God. Walking in the wisdom of God as His following His directions. That's what we've been chosen to be. And so what Peter lays out for us here is this is who the church is who's supposed to be with God now and worshiping Him here on earth. And that worship on earth is to be that which reflects the worship that we will have in heaven. One other passage where Paul deals with this same concept is in Galatians chapter 4. And he relates again Mount Sinai and Mount um, Zion as he says in chapter uh, 4 of Galatians, starting verse 21, Tell me, you who deserve to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one of a slave woman and one of a free woman, but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born uh, through, uh, through the promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These, these women are two covenants. One is Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. Like um, She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. What he's saying here is that this concept, you've got those that want to live by the law, and it's, again, remember the law was good, but if you say, I'm going to obey the law strong enough so I can go to heaven. I'm going to keep it perfect enough so I can go be with God. I'm going to, to not sin in my life, and then God will have to receive me. Well, you're half wrong. If you do that, if you live perfectly, if you do not ever sin, then theoretically you will go to heaven. That was the original thing. God, obey me. Told Adam and Eve, obey me. And you'll walk with me in the cool of the evening. We'll be together. But what did Adam and Eve do? They sinned. What did their children do? They sinned. Remember, we looked at how Cain, Eve thought Cain was going to be the, the son who'd come out and reverse everything. And he only kills his brother. That sinfulness came with us. And we're all sinful. All have sinned. You can't do it. Yet we still want to. Because there's a part in us that says, I want to be, win my own salvation. I want to prove myself good enough. I want to live this way. You can't do it though. We have to overcome that. We have to overcome that and recognize. And that's what the law does. It puts the standard up there. And it is a high standard that you cannot keep. 
You cannot fail. And when you see that, then you fall on your knees and you say, Oh, I am a sinner. Pity me, Lord. Have Your grace upon me. Give me Your free gift, which is Jesus Christ. That's the heart of our worship. We read in Revelation how the angels and the uh, the elders fell down before the Lord. That's symbolically what we have to do in our minds and our wills as we say, Lord, here am I. I am a sinner. I am not worthy of Your salvation. But if indeed You do love me as You've said You do, then take my life. Accepting God's promise that Jesus has paid the price for you. That's what it's all about. That's where it comes. Otherwise, we're trying to follow the law or are we going to follow God's grace? God's free gift to us, which is salvation. So when we come to this idea of how we worship, then we see that our worship is indeed to be that of following what God has said for it to be. In the um, September Table Talk magazine, Table Talk's put out by Ligonier Ministries. Um, R.C. Sproul was the founder of that, and he's gone to be with the Lord, but they're continuing to put out materials and, um, and from down in Orlando, Florida area. And in that um, September, there was an article preparing for worship. And I thought it would be a good way to, to kind of finish our, um, our my talk here this morning as we think about this fact that what God has done for us and has called us and how we submit and yield to that, then how do we respond? And this fellow, Camden Boosey, brings out a couple of facts. I'm just going to read a couple, um, two paragraphs from that letter, or portions of two paragraphs. He says, If the people were commanded to prepare themselves before receiving the Old Covenant at Sinai, how much more should we prepare to meet the Lord each week for His greater New Covenant blessing? Think about that moment. Before Sinai, they had to prepare themselves. They had to wash themselves and cleanse themselves. They had to bring their offerings. They had all these rituals they went through to to be able to be clean to come in God's presence. He said, if that's true, what do we should do in this world each week to get ready to worship God? And then, toward the end of the article, he sort of answers that. He says that corporate worship is the gathering of God's people to worship as a body not a collection of people individually engaging in secret worship. Remember you, um, why you have assembled, <clears throat> even as you greet other people, direct your thoughts toward worship, not on the events of the past week, but on God. And the greatest thing we can do each week as we come to worship God is to focus upon what worship is all about. It's not bad to go and read those passages, Revelation 4, Revelation 7, where you see in heaven how they're falling down and the adoration they're giving to God. You know, the danger we run into is that we do like each other. And we are friends with each other. And we look forward to gathering together as the body of Christ. All those things we've said we're supposed to be as a church. But if we let that be the end in itself, then we fall short. Because our goal is to come and to focus upon God. It's about Him. Who is it that's given us salvation? It's God. We haven't earned it. You can't do it. 
We haven't done that. It is God who has given it. It's God who's given it to us freely. It's the free gift from God. We receive it only by faith, accepting God's promises being true and believing it, trusting it, trusting God that Jesus Christ's death did pay the price for my sins. It's about Him, about what He has done in calling us and enabling us to live for Him in this world. So when we gather together on the Lord's day, it is to be a day that is focused around Him. Nothing wrong with the fellowship we have with each other. But our primary fellowship needs to be upon God. It needs to be focused upon Him. And that's why in, in the Reformed churches, we have tried to make that, that aspect of our worship central and foremost in it. The preaching of God's Word. God speaking to us as the central part. Because it's about God, not about us. You know, it grieves my heart when I hear people say about worship, and this is not because I'm a preacher with anybody else, but they come out of worship and say, well, I didn't get anything out of that today. Because I know the reality, if you didn't get anything out of it, you didn't put anything in it. Because it's really not about the quality of the preacher necessarily. If he's a preacher of God, and he's proclaiming God's Word, that's, that's what is important for him. He may not be the greatest oracle, oracle person in the world, may not be, I mean, in the world, being able to proclaim in great uh, ways, but if he's telling the truth, pointing you to Christ, pointing you to God, keeping our focus upon God. But even if you don't have a preacher like that, it's your responsibility. Your responsibility to be focused upon God. Coming to worship, to look upon Him. The one who created the heavens and the earth. The one who looks at us and yes, we are sinners and He says, I love you and I will give my life for you and does that, has done that for us in Jesus Christ. The one who calls us now to be His chosen people, His holy nation, to live for Him, worship Him because He wants to walk with us. And He walks with us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your love and Your care for us. A, a love and a care that we do not deserve and cannot earn. It is Your free gift. It is Your gift to us in Jesus Christ and we thank You for that. We thank You that You have called us to be Your children. That chosen nation, the people who have been drawn out, called out from the world in order to live for You and to give You glory and honor. Father, I pray that You teach us how to do that. How to gather and worship and focus upon You. Not upon all the other things of this week or what has happened in our lives or what's going to happen this next week. But to focus upon who You are and what You have done and to thankfully come and praise and worship You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.